In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the Catechism Bible memory work. Uh, Where is this written? The holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, we have been talking about the Lord's Supper, and we've, I think we've basically finished most of our discussion about that. But the one final thing we want to talk about, I'll probably erase some of this, is um, the discussion of some of the practical issues surrounding communion. Now, we already had discussed uh, some of the, some practical issues came up last week, like I think the, the frequency of communion and maybe a few other things. Um, but there's two things that I want to start talking about tonight, and that's going to be the preparation of receiving communion and then the act of receiving communion is is what we're going to talk about. So preparation and uh, the act of receiving. All right, so that's, that's where we're going to be going uh, today just for a little bit. And then from there, uh, once we finish that, um, we're going to start on the, the table of duties in the catechism, the table of duties. So um, that's, that's the two places we're going to be going tonight. And then um, we're going to need to start to think about what we're going to do next because the, the what we believe class is coming to an end. So um, we'll, we'll have to... I'll have to discuss that with the vicar. Um, all right. So as far as preparation for communion goes, there is a one kind of throwaway line almost that Luther has in the catechism about preparing. And it's under the, the question, who receives this sacrament worthily? And this is on uh, page 327 in the hymnal, by the way. 327 is uh, a little bit of where we're at. Um, and we're also thinking a little bit, too, about the Christian questions and their answers on page 320, 3, 329 as well. 
But Luther has this kind of line where uh, he says, fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but the person who is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, okay? So last week we talked about how Luther talks about worthiness but not necessarily welcomeness, which is something we talked about. But he does talk about along with worthiness, preparation. And there's this assumption that someone is going to prepare to come to the sacrament. Uh, that, and, and why would that be? Why would that assumption be? Well, when you think about this, this all goes back to what it is, right? What is it that we're doing when we receive communion? We're in fellowship, in communion, in koinonia with the Lord's actual body and blood, Right, the Lord is present among us, and when you look at the when you look at the liturgy surrounding communion, it always strikes me, right, that um, the the idea behind all the liturgy surrounding communion, right, when we sing "Holy, Holy, Holy, Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth full of Thy glory," and when we sing um, "Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest," and when we sing "Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us and grant us peace," and and we're doing all this in the context of communion, that what we're recognizing is that we're in the presence of Christ, right? That we need to be clean, we need forgiveness of our sins, and we're going to be especially reverent. I mean, the whole service, uh, the whole worship service is in some sense reverent, but especially the reception of communion, right? We come up to the altar, People bow, they cross themselves, right? There's, we were, I think we were talking about this some last week. Um, there's a reverence that goes along with this. And why? Because we're in the presence of Christ, right? And so if, you're gonna, if you know you're going to be in the presence of Christ, right? If, if you know someone important is coming over for dinner, if you know you're going to be at fellowship with the Lord at this table, then you prepare, right? You sweep the floor, you mop, you clean the table, you do the dishes, right? You, you prepare for, for, the, for the presence of of someone important. Okay, so um, it's kind of intuitive that there's a preparation that goes along with preparing to come to communion, right? While recognizing, of course, that this is for sinners. This is a table for sinners, right? And it's actually the meal itself on some level that will cleanse us. Yet, we're still, we still want to be prepared, right? We don't want to take it just um, kind of take it casually or just... Um, that this is just something that we take for granted, right? That this is a special gift that Christ gives to us every week. All right, so um, why, what does Luther say about preparation there? Uh, it's interesting, he says, so, so let's start with the second thing first. The person who's truly well-prepared is the person who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so one of the first things we do to prepare, and perhaps the main thing, is to remember what Jesus has said this meal is and to believe those words, right? And that's kind of with Christian questions and their answers, um, that's what it's getting at. It, it goes through this whole litany of questions about who is Jesus? Are you a sinner? What did Jesus do for you? What does Jesus say about the Lord's Supper? And, and why do you believe all this, right? And if, you, if you're struggling with this, here's some advice, here's some Bible you can go and read. Right, that's kind of the idea of Christian questions and their answers. It's about having faith in those words. Okay, so that's the first thing for preparation. Is uh, the first thing is faith, right? But then Luther also says this otherly thing, this other thing where he says uh, fasting and body bodily preparation, right? Now the context in which Luther is saying this is that of, of course, late medieval Roman Catholicism, where there are lots of monks and even other pious Christians who believe that it's a law that you have to fast before you receive communion, right? And so this is why he kind of, he, he says, fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but the person who is truly worthy, truly worthy and well-prepared is the person who has faith in these words. 
So what he's doing there is, first of all, he's saying fasting and bodily preparation, they're not absolutely necessary, right? This is not a law. We're free in the gospel. You don't have to fast before you receive communion. You don't have to, uh, and there, there were other types of bodily preparation that the, the monks would, would partake in as well. But um, the, you know, even wearing sackcloth and ashes and things like that, right? But um, the, the idea of fasting and bodily preparation, um, any kind of outward fleshly training that someone would do to remember their sin and remember their dependency on God, he says that is fine, but it's not the law, right? So this is not anything to have a, a bad conscience over. But I also don't think he's joking. So this is the other side of it. What's interesting is he doesn't say, um, this is not one of the things with, with the Roman Catholics where Luther says, get rid of it. Right? He doesn't say um, no one should ever fast or bodily prepare before taking communion. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't say um, this is this is ridiculous. You know, just get rid of this practice. Right? Um, he does that about other things. Right? He does that about like private masses or about um, the Pope, <laughs> for instance. Right? And he's like, this is terrible. Just get rid of it. But. Um, when it comes to fasting in order to prepare for communion, he says, it is fine outward training. It's certainly fine outward training. I don't think he's joking here, right? And so why would someone fast before taking communion? Well, like I said, it's to show and to, to show yourself and to remember, first of all, your sinfulness, right? And your dependency on God. And so fasting, uh, fasting is an interesting topic in, in general, and maybe we can talk about it more later. But the basic idea of fasting, well, first of all, let me say this, is that Jesus, this is something that Jesus just kind of expects Christians to do, right? So uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, right? And he gives them uh, the idea about going, you know, praying privately, right? Not making a big scene about your prayer. Um, And then later on, when the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, he gives them the Lord's Prayer. So he says, when you pray, pray like this. He says the same thing about fasting. He says, when you fast, wash your face, right? When you fast, fast like this, right? And then same with almsgiving. When you give alms, give like this, right? So it's just one of these spiritual disciplines that, of course, Jesus never teaches and the Bible never teaches that it has anything to do with our salvation, right? It, it doesn't have anything to do to make you a quote-unquote better Christian or to um, earn your way into heaven or anything like that. And that was Luther's problem with the, the way that the Roman Catholics did it. But it is just a spiritual discipline that people, that he, Jesus kind of exact, expects that Christians are going to be partaking in, right? Like Christians are going to do devotions, they're going to pray, they're going to read their Bibles, they're going to fast, right? They're going to get, they're going to give alms to the church and to the poor, right? These are just things that Christians kind of do. Um, so what does fasting look like, and and what's the benefit of it? Well, the benefit of fasting is that it trains the Christian to fight against temptation, right? Because we all have these passions. Uh, that this is how the early church would often talk about it, is that humans are passionate people, right? There are, there are things in us that are part of the human soul that we, that we simply cannot, we can't, we need to try and control them, but they're, they're part of who we are. We can't get rid of them if we wanted to, right? So an example of this would be like, um, human sexuality, right? Uh, every human has an innate sense of a longing for the opposite sex, right? I mean, and of course there are exception cases where people have weird psychology or, or whatever, and, and we can talk about, about that. But in general, uh, humans are inborn, right, with this this craving of some kind, right? This passion 
that ultimately finds its end for the Christian in marriage, right? Um, but if that passion goes unchecked, then that passion will lead into sin, right? So the passions are supposed to be funneled and controlled. Um, this gets into the topic of, of, what, of what we'd call theological ethics, and we'd talk about vices and virtues. Um, but the, the passions are supposed to be funneled into virtuous things, right? Um, and not into vices. Well, another one of these passions that we could talk about is hunger, right? Every human has to deal with their need for food, right? And it can become, if it's the, the right way to deal with that is by considering what is healthy and right and good, good for your body, right, to eat. The, the unhealthy way of that, and there's always like two sides to it, right? One, one side would be the unhealthy way would, say, would be to, um, like would be something like anorexia, right, where people have a, a bad relationship with food where they, where they don't eat. The other side would be like gluttony, right? Um, so you have vices on either side and the virtue is kind of the mean in the middle where you have a healthy healthy diet, right? But every human every day has to deal with this, right? They have to deal with what am I going to put in my body to sustain my body? Um, this is a passion, right? There, there's a pat uh, that's, that's hunger, okay? And we have, we have a lot of other passions too. Those are two examples. But the idea of fasting is that it's practice in controlling your passions, right? So if I can say no to food for a certain period of time, then I'm controlling and I'm practicing saying no to other temptations, to other vices, right? I'm practicing um, controlling these passions, okay? So that's the basic idea of fasting, is that it gives us practice to say no to temptation so that when other temptations come, we're, we're in shape, if you will, to be able to say, no, that's okay, I can, I can do without that, right? And the other thing it teaches us is that, of course, man does not live by bread alone, but by the words that come from the mouth of God, right? So it, it turns us away from being inwardly focused on our passions and turns us uh, to being um, focused on Christ, okay? So to, do, to prepare for communion, this kind of makes sense because um, we're saying no to earthly food while we wait for the heavenly food that's coming from the altar. And the, the way that most Christians I know that practice this do this is that, um, and I, I try and do this, sometimes it doesn't happen, which is, which is fine, right? Again, this is not something to bind consciences, is that on Saturday night after dinner, uh, they simply won't eat until lunch on Sunday, right? So Saturday night, dinner, eat your dinner, and then no midnight snacks, and no breakfast on Sunday morning. Um, that's what the word breakfast means, by the way, right? Literally, is to break your fast. Breakfast, break fast. Um, so you don't you don't break your fast. You don't have breakfast until you have uh, communion on Sunday morning, right? So of course, 4 p.m. service. <laughs> I know that's a little difficult, right? So maybe maybe here it would be something like uh, have breakfast, but maybe skip lunch and then have dinner or something like that, right? Um, so. Or, or have a light lunch or something like that. Maybe brunch and then, I don't know, however you want to do it. But uh, that, that's the idea of fasting. So I did want to mention that because it is a very ancient uh, Christian practice that people would fast to prepare for communion. And, and Luther actually mentions it in here and says, hey, this is, a, this is, this is fine outward training. So I um, thought it was worth mentioning. All right, so that's, uh, that's preparation. Um, we already talked some about Christian questions and their answers. You can read through those on Saturday night as well as a, as a good practice. Um, uh, but the, the whole idea of preparation, right, is, is to just be mindful of what communion is and, and what it is that we're receiving here and to, again, not kind of not take it for granted, but maybe put it into practice some of these, these things to help prepare to receive. All right. Any questions on preparation? Yeah. I um, grew up watching my mother at the very young 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I totally forgot to. Um, but that's the other thing we can do to prepare is is pray, right? So prayer prayer goes right along with fasting, right? And and it also goes along with faith as well. So there's um, there's actually lots of different Yeah, there's good like entering the church. Yeah, there's lots of different prayers. But if you just open up the, the the editors of the Lutheran service book made this very easy. If you just open up the front cover of your hymnal, you don't even have to turn any pages, just the front cover. There's uh, prayers for worship printed here, and there's one for before communing and after communing that are very beautiful. So um, those are great. And then if you want to switch it up ever a little bit, there's um, more prayers for worship on page... 308 in the in the uh, hymnal as well, and there's uh, two different two uh, alternative options there. So the front cover and page 308. Front cover 308. And I also have some other ones that aren't in the hymnal I can share with you at some point too, um, which I like as well. But yeah, praying before and after communion is, um, it's a common practice and it's a, it's a very pious and, and good practice as well. All right, so the act of receiving communion then, if there weren't any other questions or comments on preparation. All right, the act of receiving communion. All right, so there's... Uh, Two basic things we want to talk about. One is the host, and and one is the the cup, right, or the bread and the wine, if you will. All right. So uh, when it comes to receiving the host, there are so with both of these things, there are two different ways um, to receive both of them. So we'll just go through we'll go through those. So the, I'll give you the kind of traditional way and then the, the more modern way, if you will. But the traditional way to receive the host is uh, directly on the tongue. And I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but and it sounds kind of odd at first, um, but you'll probably notice some people do it at, at some point. And this is when the pastor uh, simply places the the person opens their mouth and and sticks out their tongue a little bit, not like you know, not like na 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 boo boo, like just just a you know a little little bit. Um, and the pastor places the the bread right on the person's tongue. And the symbolism behind that, this is the more traditional way. Um, it's it it depends on what church you go to. It's one of those things that. Some churches, no one does it. Some churches, half the people do it. Some churches, everyone does it. It just depends, right? But um, the the symbolism of that is the idea of passive grace, right? That when when Christ comes to us, he, he comes to us as a free gift, not something that we're doing, right? Not something that we're choosing or that, that we deserve this, right? But that he's just coming to us, um, of, of his grace, right, of his favor toward us. And so that when you don't even put out your hands to take it, right, the, the idea is it's just Christ is coming directly to you, right, directly into your mouth. So that's the more traditional way. Um, and I, I'm pretty good at this, so I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not trying to, like, brag, like, oh, I'm really good at distributing communion. But... Um, I, I rarely have gotten my fingers stuck in someone's mouth <laughs> or, or been bit or, or anything like that. Um, I normally, when I grab the host, I'll just grab just the tip of it with two fingers and, and there's plenty of uh, space on the bread to, to drop it into someone's mouth, right? So um, it, it normally works, works pretty well. Once in a while, um, there's, I've, I've touched some lips or whatever. It's not, it's not a big deal, right? It just is what it is. 
That doesn't gross me out. I'm not worried about it. But um, that, that almost never happens. So just frequently asked questions, you know. <laughs> That's how it goes. Um, the second is, of course, in the hand, which is what um, I think most people here do. And um, that's perfectly fine as well, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the history of it as as to when this changed. Um, I know. I'm, my guess is it's probably fairly modern in the sense of like within the last century this has changed because um, when I talk to old school pastors, uh, they always say this was how it was, you know, growing up back in the day. So yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I graduated from grade school. I got confirmed in '71, and at that point, it was still on the tongue. Okay, there you go. So I feel like it maybe didn't happen until like maybe the late '70s, early '80s. <laughs> <laughs> where I went to I, I hate to. I always hate to do this because I feel like it's such a meme at this point, but. At, Every time I want to guess at when something changed in the church, I'm just like, it was probably the 1970s, and I'm normally right. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I have nothing against the 70s. Like, but I wonder why. Like, yeah, I mean, culturally, there was a lot of change, right? It's just the, um, it was the, the sociological term for it is the, that was the age of the sexual revolution, um, or really the second the second wave of the sexual revolution because you had the you really had the first wave in the 20s and 30s right um, but then the World War II kind of put an end to that because then people had to be serious with their lives again um, but then but the second wave came back um, after the baby boom in the 60s and 70s um, when the economy was better and when, when people had more freedom. So they kind of picked back up where their grandparents left off in the 20s. Um, but anyway, that it, it, it's a very interesting history. I went, I went through all that kind of sociological history of the last century with my men's group last year. Um, maybe that's an idea for one of the things we can talk about after what we believe. But yeah, there's just a... There's a massive number of changes in American culture uh, in the 70s that that really seem to affect the church. So, um, yeah. So that's probably when the change was. I can tell you, 1998, we were doing it. There you go. Yeah, it wasn't until I started visiting more churches um, that I first experienced the the on the tongue. Um, I can tell you, Memphis never did that. That's probably true. Neither did the United Church of Christ. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I, I should research it. I wonder if it is more of a uniquely Lutheran thing with this idea of the the grace alone. But that's what I was taught. We have a closer lineage to Catholic practices in the Lutheran Church, right? Right. Right. Correct. Um, all right, so that's the that's the host. The cup of so course. Yeah, go ahead. So I've heard people say this, but this is one of those things where there's lots of different explanations. So I don't really believe that there is a thing because this is what happens in church history all the time is that people start doing something and then they add meaning to it later. Like, why do we have candles? Well, we have candles because there used to not be light bulbs. That's why we have candles, right? But then whenever there were light bulbs, we were like, well, we'll keep the candles because it's the light of Christ, right? So um, this is how, how things in the church sometimes happen. Um, with the hands, like I said, for Lutherans, it is a more modern practice. And so my guess is that as that practice has developed, people have come up with different explanations. Um, there, the only thing that I am aware of that's that is ancient, that's not modern, is that you make a uh, how does it go? There is one really ran. It's very random, 
early church father that actually advocated receiving it in your hand because he talked about the hands as a throne for uh, for for Christ or something. It was it's like a really obscure and kind of weird thing, um, but I think he says you make your right hand a throne for your left. That's what that that's what this random guy. I think it was Gregory of Nyssa, if I'm not mistaken. But maybe I don't know. Um, being left-handed is kind of like a you kind of get made fun of in the Bible if you're left-handed. Um, because everything is like the right hand of God is the better the better side, right? Um, except for the judge who's left-handed uh, and and kills King Eglon because he tricks him by because he he has the sword hidden on his left or whatever. What's that? What judge is that? I don't remember. Anyway. So one last question. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for all Lutherans everywhere. Well, the, I mean, at some point, obviously far enough back in history, congregations are probably making their own. They're not ordering it from CPH, right? Um, and we used to make our own. Yeah. Yeah, you make like a sheet of it, and then you just cut it up. Yeah. So yes, in that sense. Um, yeah. And I think we always need to keep like recipes for that kind of stuff around because what if what if supply chains don't don't work right? You know, we should probably know how to do that. Well, but that, that just kind of strikes me as something that you have a common cup and you have like a common love. Yeah, that's I mean that's the whole argument in First Corinthians 10 is we're one we're one body, right? It's one bread, one loaf. And the the Didache, um, a very early church manual, talks about this about how uh, the many grains come together to make the one loaf, and then we partake together of the one loaf and all this imagery there. So um, I will say that CPH tells you that what they do is they make a sheet of it that's in a mold, and then they they, they pop out the individual thing. So it all, it all does come from one loaf, right? Yeah, it's kind of silly, but the, the idea is there. I feel better now. Yeah, thank you. You read the description on the website. You feel better. It's one loaf. So in theory, the sleeve that you get is is one loaf or whatever. Um, right. They probably that's probably even a third party. I don't even know where they can. <laughs> uh, oh, the modern world. Okay. Uh, so that's the host. Any other questions on the host? Okay. So then, uh, cup. We have the uh, obvi- obviously the chalice. Also known as the common cup, and then the uh, individual cups. And you're never going to guess this, but individual cups came around in the 1960s and 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> the chalice is, is much more ancient, and again, the symbolism there of the, the one cup. And uh, so the thing I'll say about the chalice and, and individual cups is, you know, a, I don't really have a theological preference. I mean, symbolically, it's nice to drink from the one cup, but you are pouring from the same bottle in the individual cups, right? Um, the the couple things I'll say is that the the chalice. Um, I'm just a traditional guy, right? So the chalice is my preference. Um, but as far as germs go, if anyone is concerned about germs, you should actually probably take the chalice. Okay, there's a couple reasons for that. So um, one, the chalice is silver as opposed to glass or plastic. And silver is uh, antimicrobial, right? And it's actually an anti- antibiotic, right? So people will take uh, colloidal silver for an antibiotic, right? Or use um, the colloidal silver gels and stuff for wounds. This is what they did back in the days before you could just go to CVS, right? So you could make colloidal silver. Uh, so silver is antimicrobial. It's uh, it's kind of an antibiotic, so it kills it kills germs. Um, second, uh, we're using a port wine here, so of course this applies to the individual cups as well. Um, but 
I'd have to double check. It's a fortified wine, so it's a higher alcohol percentage. So of course it kills some germs as well. And then uh, three, we're wiping it down every time with that uh, purificator, right? Um, so the silver is being wiped uh, with with the um, with the wine there, and um, the. Anyway, I'll, I'll get to my conclusion here. So those are the three reasons why it's actually not that unsanitary. Um, the individual cups also have a have a downside that um, whenever people reach in and grab them, that their fingers are touching the other ones inevitably, right? So where um, really the only person touching the, the chalice, I mean, they're touching the bottom of it, but they're not touching the rim and stuff. I mean, with their mouth they are, obviously. But... Um, that what I'm saying is that the individual cups are also being touched by other people. So there's also a potential for germs there. But interestingly enough, I can print it off if you want, but like back in the 2000s sometime, the CDC did a study on churches that used chalice and individual cups. I don't know. There must have been some Lutheran working at the CDC. I don't know why they did this, but they did. Um, and they discussed... They, they tested for germs on, on both the chalice and individual cups um, before and after communion and everything. Uh, and they discovered that the chalice actually had fewer germs on it at the end of communion. So, um, that, But their conclusion also, which is my conclusion, is that there's never been a case of any kind of outbreak of any kind of disease or sickness trace back to a communion service at a church, right? So um, I'm not saying you can't get sick from communion, but it's not ever been known to really happen. And the chalice seems to be just as sanitary as individual cups. So if that, that's a common misconception was that, oh, individual cups will be better because they're, they're more sanitary because we're not all drinking out of the same cup together. That's actually not really the case. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not a scientist or anything, but, um, and I don't even necessarily always trust the CDC about everything they say, but this study seems like it was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty well done. So, um, that's, that's a, that's the, that's my thing about germs is the chalice is actually not really any different as far as sanitary conditions go. So, um, but other than that, yeah, it's, it is a preference thing. Uh, obviously, the chalice is more traditional, and it's um, got more of that symbolism of drinking of the same cup together. But the individual cups are, are fine as well. So any questions on, on that? I don't really have anything else to say about that, I think. All right. In that case, uh, what what time is it? Okay, we got about 20 minutes. So let's look at the table of duties. And I I should have printed something off for this because I forgot that in the hymnal it only so you're going to need your Bibles because in the hymnal it only lists Bible verses. It doesn't actually have them printed out. But this is on page um, 328. All right, so we're on page 328 in the catechism, in the hymnal, which is the catechism. All right, so what is the table of duties? Uh, so the little description passage there, that Luther says about what the table of duties is. He says, certain passages of scripture for various holy orders and positions, admonishing them about their duties and responsibilities. And then at the uh, very end of the table of duties there, it says, let each his lesson learn with care and all the household well shall fare. A little, little rhyme. Um, I wonder what that is in German. Um, anyway, the table of duties is literally what it sounds like, it's a table, right, kind of a chart, if you will, of the different duties that people have. 
And when we talk about this, what we're really talking about is this Lutheran doctrine of vocation. So vocatio in Latin, it means calling. And the question that we're asking is where has God called you in life? Where has God called you to be in life? And connected to that are what we're going to call three estates. This is something that Luther likes to talk about a lot in his other writings. Three estates, and those estates in order are the family, the church, and society, or the state, you can also say. And the idea behind the three estates and between and behind callings uh, is that this is this is somewhat connected to the fourth commandment. Um, if you remember way back when we did the Ten Commandments, but this is also going to be connected to all the Ten Commandments in a sense. Uh, the fourth commandment: honor your father and your mother. Is this idea that God has put us in? If you remember when we talked about this, ordered relationships with other people. Ordered relations, relationships with other people. And those ordered relationships take root in these different estates, in the family, church, and society. And in those ordered relationships, we're given different callings. We're given different vocations. Right? So... You can just start with the fourth commandment, right? Some of the vocations in family are things like father and mother, right? And then we can expand out from there, right? Son, daughter, so on and so forth. Brother, sister, cousin, aunt, right? We can, you can extend it out. Some of the ordered relationships in church, the two main ones would be pastor and what Luther here is going to call the hearers of the word or, or lay people, right? And then in society, um, we have government, citizen, uh, employees or employers, employees. so on and so forth. Right. And when we talk about these vocations and these callings, I, I do want to make one thing uh, clear or give kind of one caveat to this when we're talking especially about ordered relationships and the table of duties, is we're talking about things that... Uh, remember what, what Luther said there in that little description we read? Um, holy orders. What's the word holy mean? The word holy means set apart, right? And what sets apart these orders or these ordered relationships or these vocations? Uh, it's that they come from the Bible. They come from God's word, right? They come from God himself. They're God instituted. God is holy, right? When something is holy, we're saying that it's from God, right? The Bible, Biblos, means book, when we say the Holy Bible, we mean God's book, right? So when we say holy orders, we're talking about things that God has instituted, okay? So when Luther gives these this table of duties, what he's doing um, is he's going through the things specifically that uh, he sees as God talking about, right? Not So sometimes, sometimes people will um, use... The, this terminology to talk about things that God hasn't necessarily talked about, right? Um, so let me let me give an example. If there's a say, there's a guy who has a family, and um, Garrison and I were talking about this at lunch the other day. Okay, so we, we won't name names, but he was telling me there's a guy who has a family that's life dream 
was to study philosophy. Okay, so he quit whatever job he was in to go and study philosophy, right? That's kind of a bad life decision, right? You got to provide for your family. Now, we don't know his exact situation. Maybe he is still has a way to provide for his family or whatever. But sometimes in our modern world, especially, I think people say things like, well, my calling in life is to go do this thing, right? And really what they mean is my deep desire and what I want to do is to go do this thing. But it might not be what God's calling you to, right? It might not be something that's instituted by God, right? No matter, no matter what uh, job you have as an employee, right? A father has to provide for his family, right? A husband has to provide for his wife, whether or not um, that's working at McDonald's or being a professional philosopher or working at Winchester, whatever it may be, right? Um, he's got to provide for his family, right? You, you can't just say, well, my calling in life is to go do this thing that I really want to do, right? My calling in life is to go ride roller coasters all the time or something like that, right? To take a, a trip around America and ride all the roller coasters. Like, no, sorry, that's not your calling, right? So that's a, a little bit of a, a caveat there is we're talking about holy orders, right? We're talking about things that God speaks of, right? Um, and, and this is a, a helpful way to kind of start to order our life, right? So the, the point we want to make to start with here when we're talking about all these things um, and I already mentioned the, the, the fourth commandment, but we can think about all ten commandments, right? This is a similar connection in the catechism to how in the Lord's Prayer we learned the theology of prayer. And then in the section on daily prayers, Luther wants to give an example of how to actually implement prayer into your life. This is the same kind of thing with the Ten Commandments, is that in the Ten Commandments, we learn the theology of how to live. And now Luther is taking these other Bible verses to show, yeah, you actually do that in your daily life, right? The Ten Commandments, yeah, you actually live those out in family and church and society. You actually live those out when you think about being a parent or a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a pastor or a layperson or in the government, or as a citizen, or as an employer, or as an employee. You actually live those Ten Commandments out, right? You love God and love your neighbor in your vocation and station in life, right? So um, that's what the Table of Duties is all about from the broad perspective. Any questions before we jump into some of these um, individual Bible verses? What time is it? Is that all kind of tracked? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, so we'll start. What he starts with is uh, bishops, pastors, and preachers, uh, which all mean the same thing. And he gives a couple different verses there. I got to grab a Bible. Uh, so. The first two are from 1 Timothy 3, uh, so we'll, we'll go there first, 1 Timothy 3. And 1 Timothy 3 uh, lists primarily the qualifications for pastors. And what's uh, notable, by the way, just in case you didn't already know this, is that First and Second Timothy and Titus are what are called the pastoral epistles. So we get a selection here from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but uh, really... If you want to know what the Bible says about pastors, there are three books dedicated to it in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. So you can read all of those for uh, the sake of knowing what a Christian pastor is and isn't, if you're interested. All right, but First Timothy 3, uh, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 6, I'll just read all of those. Now, the overseer, I'll just read 2 through 6. Um, we can read 5 as well. That's okay. We can read more Bible, not less. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Don't worry. I only have one wife. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, 
not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment uh, as the devil. And I'll just finish that paragraph. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Okay, so, um, excuse me. What Timothy is laying out here is these qualifications for a pastor. And the point I want to make here is that these are not ridiculous qualifications. So I've, I've, I've heard this interpretation before, and I think it's a mistake. Um, there's a truth to it, but if we take it too far, I think it's a mistake that one can say, oh, well, no one can live up to these high standards. And so, um, and, and in the Christian church, right, the, the central thing is the forgiveness of sins. What Paul's doing here is just showing how no one can live up to this. And so we just need to operate with the forgiveness of sins and um, have grace on the, the men who are pastors. And um, if they don't live up, you know, if they, if they fail at one of these things, that's okay. We can, we can look past it, right? I think that would be a mistake because I don't think when you read this, Paul is really joking at all, right? Um, it's not some sort of rhetorical advice to be like, uh, yeah, you know, no one can really do this job and no one, no one meets these standards, right? The truth, the truth in that interpretation is that, yes, no one meets these standards absolutely perfectly, right? Um, it, it, it's not like I've never been violent, like I've never had a thought of violence in my head or something like that, right? Or that my children have ever disobeyed me. Of course, my children have disobeyed me before. But the idea here is that in general, this is the way of the person that's the pastor, right? In general, this is someone uh, who is... Uh, the, especially, I think the, the first thing is actually kind of a summary of everything else, that he's above reproach, right? Which the idea of being above reproach means someone cannot bring a reproach against you. Someone cannot um, come and say to their pastor, hey, pastor, um, we know that you're living in this open public sin, right? We know that you're going out to, everyone in town knows that you're going out to the bar at 3 p.m. every day and getting drunk, right? Everyone knows that your household is a complete disaster, right? Um, that there are, because there, there are people like that, right? There, and there are Christians, right, that have these problems that they struggle with that are, they're good, they're true Christians, right? They have saving faith, but they're not above reproach, right? There are, things that you could bring against against them and say, hey, look, we know that this is a problem for you in your life, right? The pastor's not supposed to be one of those guys. The pastor's supposed to uh, set a certain standard of, of Christian living, right? Um, and again, of course, that's not to say that pastors are perfect. It's not to say that pastors are less sinful, right? But this has to do with open public sin, which is a different thing, right? Like, yes, we all sin, um, but there's there is a distinction, and I think it's I think it's pretty simple. I don't think it's that hard, right? Um, and that there are men in the church who meet these standards, and men in the church who don't meet these standards, right? Does that make sense? It's not like I don't I don't know. I just uh, this is something that's that's been an an issue before in the church, and I think Lutherans are. A little bit susceptible to it just because of our theology of, of law and gospel and grace alone and stuff. But this is not somewhere where um, Paul's kind of giving an impossible standard. I think it's a real standard. Yeah, Garrison. How do you think this would apply just out of curiosity to people who have a messed up life before they became a Christian, but then they become a Christian, but there may be still be certain elements of their life that like they just like you can't get rid of like people in your life, for example, like family. So, like, for example, I mean, when I was growing up in the Baptist church, we were looking for a pastor. Uh, some people were against um, hiring a pastor who had been divorced. And 
I actually don't think that that was before he had become a Christian, but just out of curiosity, like if a person had been divorced before they became a Christian. Yeah. It's a hard question. Um, so that's okay. So uh, let me let me. It's t- really kind of two different questions. I mean, the the example is one question, and then the the broader question. Let me do the broader question first. The the broader question is: there a difference between someone who used to not be a Christian and had a certain kind of life, and then someone who became a Christian? And I think that's demonstrably true, because Paul himself was a murderer of Christians and then became one of the apostles, right? So clearly there can be a uh, Christian who had a certain lifestyle before that becomes a Christian and then can become a pastor. Now he does warn, and that's that second part that we didn't touch on yet, that they, and and Paul kind of gets a dispensation for this, right? Because he has the whole Damascus Road thing, but... um, in general, right, he must not be a recent convert, um, or he may become conceited and and fall under the same judgment as the devil, right? So the way this plays that plays out in practicality, just as a side note, is that at least in the the way that the two LCMS seminaries do it, is that you have to be a Lutheran for three years before applying for seminary. So, um, and that is true, by the way, because uh, there, I have seen um, cases where exceptions were made for that particular rule and where it wasn't actually a good thing, right? Um, the thing with converts, I mean, it's great when people convert, of course, but they, they are almost a little too on fire for Jesus, if that makes sense. Um, and and I, I understand here what Paul's saying is that, that converts can, can become conceited in a way. That they um, they don't have the humility of someone who's been in the church and kind of seen how things work for a long time, and they're very idealistic, which is good, but it can be bad if they want to become a pastor right away. So that's a side note. Um, I can't remember how I got there. Okay, your question about divorce though is an interesting one, um, and the LCMS has had varied practice on this throughout history. So. I should be careful not to step on toes, but I'll tell you my personal opinion. Even though Paul was a murderer of Christians, he wasn't divorced. I think Paul was widowed. Um, he, The way he talks in 1 Corinthians 7, anyway, that's beside the point. He's single when he's a pastor. Um, but the husband of one wife, right, this, this line, he must be the husband of one wife, I kind of made a joke that about polygamy there. Obviously, it's about polygamy, right? You shouldn't, shouldn't have multiple wives. But um, the question of interpretation there is, is that a question about uh, divorce or not, right? Is that only a question about polygamy? Or does husband of one wife mean that he's only ever had one wife, right? Now, the Eastern Orthodox are kind of interesting. They won't if a pastor is widowed. So, well, they go back and forth on the issue of whether or not a pastor or a a priest in their case should be married. But if a priest was married or is married and then he's widowed, um, he's not allowed to get remarried, right? Because a husband of one wife, right? But um, the... What I'll say, I, I believe the, the traditional and the, the kind of majority historical view of, of this text is that this is also talking about divorce, that someone who's been divorced is disqualified from the office of the ministry. And that's what I tend to think um, because it, it goes to that verse about the children too. Verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? is that someone who's divorced, maybe it wasn't their fault, but the people in the pews aren't sure of that, right? This is the above reproach thing, is you don't want a situation where someone... So let me give you a practical example. The pastor's previously divorced, and everyone knows that, and then there's a, a couple that comes for marriage counseling to the pastor 
that wants a divorce, but it's not a good divorce. It's not a lawful divorce, right? It's not because of adultery or abandonment. And so they're just, you know, bickering or whatever. It's, it's a stupid reason to get divorced and it's unbiblical. And the pastor counsels them, hey, this is not a lawful divorce. You should not get divorced. You need to stay together. And then they say, well, who are you to talk? That's the above reproach idea, right? And so I, I think that ideally, and again, I, I, I'm, I don't want to step on any toes or anything because the LCMS has a varied practice on this um, throughout history. But so there are divorced pastors on the roster. But uh, I think ideally one who's divorced would, would be disqualified from the, the office of the ministry. And I think it's fine too. Like um, the, not everyone has to be a pastor, right? That's kind of the point of this passage is like there, there are only certain men that fit these qualifications, right? Like, and that's true with kind of anything, right? Like I, there, if you apply for any job, there's a list of qualifications, Right. And you got to fit those qualifications if you want to get that job. Like if you don't have the degree or you don't have the training or you don't have the skill set, like that's, that just is what it is. Get a different job. Not a big deal, right? It has nothing to do with the value of a person or anything like that. So um, anyway, go ahead. This may be a dumb question, but just when it comes to like having one's family in order and everything like that, so... Could the status or could whether or not one should be or continue being a pastor depend on certain stuff like, I mean, let's say that I'm a pastor and my adult child is on drugs and, you know, has a lot of problems in their personal life and things like that. Things that are, I mean, would be scandalous. Um, right. Basically. But at the same time, you know, it's your adult child or something like that. Could things like that have an impact on whether you should be a pastor? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, we got people funneling in here. All right, whatever, it'll be fine. Um, so the way that I've heard this described that I think is helpful is, hey, buddy, that um, there is a gray area with some of these things, right? So if you're on the beach and you have, so say this is, the beach here, and you got the ocean out here, right? This is the ocean, and you got the sand here, right? The tide kind of comes in and out, right? And you got this kind of gray area here where the sand is wet. Sometimes the water's there. Sometimes the water's not, right? People can say definitely what's dry ground and definitely what the ocean is, but this is a gray area. Is this the beach or is that the ocean, right? The analogy here is, say a pastor has, let's just say he has five kids, okay? Now, four of them grow up, stay in the church, live Christian lives. They're all fine. One's a bad apple. One gets on drugs, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You would... You would look at that situation, you'd say, yeah, that pastor, he's on dry ground. He has managed his own family well. Yes, there's a bad apple, but that's, that's the minority case, right? Um, if, on the other hand, say a pastor has five kids and they're, they're all a complete mess, like this one here, um, and... You know, that they're all dropping out of school. They're all on drugs, right? Um, his house is, you know, literally unclean, you know, a mess all the time, whatever. You'd be able to say, that guy's not in good, he's not managing his household, right? There are other situations, and you can just use your imagination because we're kind of out of time here. Um, there, are, there are other situations where you'd say, you know, it's kind of a gray area, Right? And in those situations, I'd say the pastor should consider his own conscience. Like, how do you think, like, do you think you've managed your own household well? And um, he should also probably take counsel with, like, the, the elders of the church and the leadership of the church and say, hey, do you, 
do you feel like you could bring reproach against me? You know, and and try and have an on, honest conversations and kind of figure that out, right? So, um, there that's that's kind of my answer is that there are gray areas when it comes to things like that. So that's how it goes. That's life. Not everything's black and white. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a great book uh, called The Duties of Parents by J.C. Ryle, and it's about Proverbs 26, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, and that this is a gospel promise that we should trust in, in Christ, um, that when we train up our children, uh, they that, that Christ, Christ will bless that, right? And... Uh, I, I think he does discuss in there, though, that, yeah, sometimes you train them up, and that still doesn't happen, right? That's just that's how it goes. So, All right, let's, uh, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day, and we thank you for giving us instruction from your word on how to apply your, your word into our lives. Uh, we pray that you would help us to do this, and we pray that you would bless our worship today together. And we thank you for all that you have given us Uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right.